Thank you, Mark. It's a great privilege to be here. Uh, OMF has a long connection to Prairie. My mother is a Prairie alumni and she sends her greetings. I don't think there's any buildings left from the time when she was here. And as uh, Mark has mentioned, my uncle Harold uh, and Lorna attended here and uh, have a, a great appreciation for the school. Uh, our history with OMF uh, and Prairie goes back, as I said, many years, and we have some evidence of that today. Uh, Albin and Anna Douglas served with OMF in the Philippines for many years. Albin Douglas's uh, book on Bible lessons is still used today. Uh, I met them, I believe, when I was a, a, a babe in diapers. Uh, Anna has promised not to tell any of those stories, but she's here today, 101 years old. Anna, would you just raise your hand and can we just welcome her? I feel like I could sit down. God's faithfulness made real through the faithfulness of his people. That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to uh, presume on your biblical literacy a little bit. Uh, Mark assured me that it's halfway through the year, so you're less illiterate than you were a few months ago. Um, we're going to read Romans chapter 6, but we're going to focus on one verse from there. But I, I can't look at one verse of something Paul has written. It just isn't possible. So we're going to read the, book, uh, the chapter, not the book of Romans. That would be good too. But uh, chapter 6 of Romans, let me read. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, as just, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no, should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness." I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And this is the verse we'll focus on. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I did study Romans in Bible college. I have no intention of replacing any of your professors. This is a deep and profound book, and we have about 20 minutes. However, I also want to take us and look at some other passages. So I really am going to ask you to just journey with me uh, as we look at this passage, and particularly at these notions of being slaves to God, living in holiness, and having, receiving eternal life. Paul begins by just trying to make the point very clearly that we are all set free by Christ's death and resurrection, that we have entered into the death of Christ and therefore we have been set free from the slavery of sin and we have been brought to life and we've identified with the life of Christ and so there is a new life that we have. That's his point when he says in verse 20, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, you have a new identity. We have a new identity. Our identity is wrapped up in our being united in Christ. That's the reality that we face. Now, I think we struggle a little bit to understand even the concept of slavery. It's, it's, it's in our world today, but not in most of our consciousness. And I, I want to take us to the Old Testament for, and to three specific slavery stories for three very specific reasons. The first is, we spend too much time as evangelicals in the New Testament. We need to be in the Old Testament too. As someone who worked with Muslims for many years, I quickly realized that for Muslims to understand the New Testament, they had to understand the Old Testament. The second thing is that we have in the Old Testament stories real life examples of God's people in slavery. And we need to hear from them because they illustrate the point that Paul is making. The third reason is that we need to ground our reflection in the incarnational life, real life. We are too often spending time in the sort of uh, academic halls of reflection, and we need to recognize that God's truth has real, very real life and blood connections. So let me take you to three slaves, people that you know. Let's start with Joseph, a man who was given a dream by God and then ended up a slave in Egypt. And remarkably, through that experience of slavery, of imprisonment, he held on to his identity as a, a, a person, a child of God, a person of the God of his fathers. He held on to his confidence that that dream God had given him would somehow come true because God was sovereign over those who had made him a slave. He chose to, to choose the identity of being a slave of God even when Pharaoh and Potiphar and others saw him as their slave. Let's think about Daniel. Daniel, who was an exile, drawn into Babylon, taken into exile, part of a global empire whose God had triumphed over the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Yahweh had lost, and yet Daniel chose to hold on to his identity as a follower of God against the whole of Babylon. And he stood firm in that identity. And as a result, we have the stories of him and his friends in the lion's den in the fiery furnace because he held on to that identity. And perhaps most remarkably, but often overlooked, I love the story of Naaman's servant girl. 
We don't know her name. We only have her very... I call her Sarah. She's a remarkable example of someone who was taken into slavery, enslaved in the house of the captain of the army that had brutally abducted her. And she chose remarkably to love Naaman enough to desire his healing. I find her one of the most compelling characters in scripture. She chose to be, although she was a slave of Naaman, to see her identity as united with God as a slave of God. These three characters help us to understand what Paul is saying when he calls us to take hold of our identity of Christ's death and resurrection and to hold on to our identity in Christ as slaves of God. And that takes us to the next part of this passage because Paul says that you have been set free for from sin and have become slaves to God, and the benefit you reap leads to holiness. So one of, the, one of the realities that we need to take on board is that if we are willing to hold on to, to grasp, to live in the identity of being slaves of God, because we are identified with Christ, the result will be holiness. But we have a choice to make. There is a, a bit of a, a, an irony here, a paradox, because Paul is talking to us as the, about slavery, but he is also giving us a choice. And this is the reality. The choice is whether we will live in that identity. That holiness comes from our willingness to choose to be identified with Christ. In Colossians 2, Paul unpacks this more in verses 9 and 10 when he talks about how we are, have all of the fullness of Christ. This identity of Christ is so rich and deep that if we live in that truth, it transforms us. And the result is holiness. And in fact, in, 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 verse, in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul takes that further when he talks about us as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Paul is saying, because you have been chosen, because that's your identity, then you will be made holy if you choose to live in that identity, if you choose that identity in Christ. And Peter takes that further in 1 Peter when he talks about God's chosen people. And he says, this is who we are, aliens and strangers in the world, but our true identity is our chosen identity in Christ. And that holiness, that holiness will flow out of us, will be a part of our identity because of the life of Christ in us. And if we go back to our three guides from the Old Testament, we see this again and again and again. Think of Daniel and the choice he made to choose the identity of being a follower of Yahweh over the identity that, ne- that Babylon was trying to squeeze him into. And so he stood up and he refused to be defiled. He chose to live a holy life. And that holy life resulted in his witness. It resulted in him being noticed. He chose and then God took that holiness, that poured that holiness into him. He chose to resist the temptation of privilege and power that was being offered to him. And he chose instead the identity of being one of God's people. Think of Joseph. In that moment when Potiphar's wife offers him sexual fulfillment and favor and all that would come with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes about this choice to be identified with Christ and the implications for sexual purity to a church and a community that was deeply struggling with sexuality. 
And Paul says, you need to recognize that you've been bought with a price, that you have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so holiness, is a, it is part of what flows. It comes from, it results from that identity, that choice to be in Christ. And so Joseph refused Potiphar's wife's offer and bore the consequences of that. And God was faithful. And as a result, Joseph was able to stand before Pharaoh and God's name was glorified. Think of Sarah. You know, we can wrestle with many, many temptations. Sarah, Naaman's, again, we don't know her name. I'll use the name Sarah. Sarah also had a choice to make. Here she is as a young servant girl in the household of Naaman, and she is caught. She's trapped. She's imprisoned. She, we know that she remembers, must have remembered something of the circumstances of her capture, Why? Because she remembers that there's a God in Israel. She knows that. So she also would know something of what she lost. And the temptation for Sarah, I believe, is to reject God out of bitterness and anger at his betrayal of her. And she chose not to do that. She chose remarkably to resist the temptation to bitterness and anger, to choose holiness and to love Naaman. And that choice for holiness had tremendous consequences for Naaman and his family and for many others. You know, as I think of the people who I've been blessed to to spend time with over these past years, my mother and father, Harold and Lorna, Anna and Alvin Douglas, but many, many others. I've had the privilege of traveling around the world. I have seen God's people accept life and challenges in difficult places, and live holy lives in those contexts with remarkable effect. I've had the privilege to be in North Korea twice, to be with people who have chosen to live in that country. I remember watching the uh, video of one of those who was held hostage in North Korea, and who, when released, was so glad to be back on home soil. And I happen to know that at the same time, a young lady had just received her visa to work and live in North Korea. And she was so thrilled with joy and thankfulness to be able to live in North Korea. The paradox of God's people choosing holiness in difficult contexts. That's the challenge that Paul is putting before us. That's the opportunity that we have. And that's then where this verse goes as we move to the end of the verse, because Paul says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. The word life here is a big, big word. It's a word that encapsulates all of the living life of God, the shalom of life in the presence of God, the wholeness of Christ's life, It's that big, big word. And I I have concerns about how this passage is often read because I think in our Western hyper-individualistic reading of Scripture, we read this as, this is talking about my personal salvation. And I want to tell you that's not what it's talking about. Paul has already said that we have been bought, that we have been identified with Christ, that God has given us, 
the gift of salvation. In fact, in the next verse, Paul says it is the gift of eternal life. But what Paul is talking about here is the living out of the reality of that life. He's talking about living the fullness of that life now and into eternity. This is not lifeboat theology. This is not the Titanic, you know, where a few people get rescued and they're, they're safe on a, on a lifeboat in the midst of a sea and they spend the rest of their time there until they are rescued and taken to heaven. He's not talking about an eternal life in a, in a lifeboat in a cold, dark sea huddled there. He's talking about something far more dynamic and powerful that he's inviting us to. And that is the life of the glory of God lived out in the midst of those who see. The holiness of God is God's intended way that we bear witness to his glory. I think we struggle with holiness. I struggle with holiness. But too often I struggle alone in the basement of my house or, or alone on a plane or alone, wherever that is. I struggle, and, and Satan wants me to see that as a struggle with holiness between me and God, with God there as a referee or a judge. And I think we need to step away from that picture We need to understand that holiness is the gift that God wants to give us, and it's for public consumption. It's not for me. My holiness is what God wants to create in me so that I can be the life of Christ in the world for his glory. And that's precisely what we see in the lives of Joseph, of Daniel, and of Sarah. Look at the the result of Joseph making a choice to live with his identity as one of the people of God, rejecting sexual temptation, living a pure life, and as a consequence, being given the opportunity to speak the truth of God at the highest levels of Egypt, to say to Pharaoh, only God can interpret dreams, but I, by God's grace, can tell you what that dream meant. And Pharaoh is elevated and God's people are saved. That comes because Joseph held true to his identity and because of that lived a holy life empowered by God in public, in the the public market. And his choice had consequences that God brought as good, even though they were painful for Joseph at the time. Daniel, because of Daniel's choice, to live a holy life in line with his identity as one of the people of God in spite of all the odds. Because of that, Daniel was elevated to be one of the rulers of Babylon. His choice and his life brought glory to God. The kings of Babylon again and again were confronted with the reality that no matter how high they thought they were, there was a greater one. There was a God to whom they were accountable. And think of Sarah. Think of Sarah, this young girl who remarkably chooses to hold on to her identity as one of God's people and to bear witness to that identity, to say to her mistress, there is a God, there is a prophet in Israel who can heal my master. And so Naaman goes to Israel And in that remarkable story, at the end of it, Naaman says, now I know that there is no God in all the world but the God of Israel. That happened because Sarah made that choice to live a holy life. 
Holiness is not about our salvation. We're saved by the work of Christ. Holiness is about others' salvation. It's about the opportunity we have to allow God to form us into one whose testimony will change the world. We are called to be the light of the world. In Matthew 5, we're called, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be ambassadors of Christ, to live holy lives. And I want to invite you to take hold of that adventure. One of the things that I find hardest in my conversations and travel is when I meet bored Christians. If you are a follower of Christ, you have no right to be bored because there is a God who wants to fill you with his spirit in such a compelling way that your life will sparkle with the Holy Spirit and then he wants to take you and place you in a place where that sparkle in the darkness will shine so brightly that people will come to see God, see that God and will glorify him. That's our calling. Holiness because of who we are in Christ for the glory of God and eternal life. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be your servants, for this great adventure, and for the stories of these three who accepted their identity as your people in the midst of slavery and proved that their real identity was that they were your slaves by their choice. In your name, amen.